afternoon, everybody. We are recording this at 11.58 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Max Cohen. Uh, I'm joined today by Colborn Bell for the first weekly edition of Current Events with Max and Colborn. Colborn, what's up? How are we doing? Uh, everything's great, man. I'm off a two-week trip, uh, Crypto Art Soul, and then over to Singapore for 2049. Um, and I'm just excited to be here to do a little decompression session with you. Cool. Awesome. Let's decompress away. So the idea behind this podcast, which is a little gimmicky, admittedly, but in a, I think a, a really profound way is that we're going to kind of talk about the current events of the day, but without a ton of preparation, I think that's going to allow both of us to react a little bit more truthfully. Uh, if we don't know what the other person is going to kind of hit them with. So I have come up with a short list of a couple things going on in the crypto art world that I thought would be interesting to talk about. I think you did as well. And I figure I'll begin and we'll kind of just go back and forth until we either exhaust each other or we exhaust our topics. What do we think? I'm into it. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So my first current event of the week is the news that your NFTs are actually finally totally worthless. Rolling Stone put out an article earlier this week about how 95% of NFTs in general uh, have zero value, like zero dollars and zero cents of value. And while this totally gripped the crypto art world, it also seems to have spread out into the non-crypto art world where it inspired uh, a frankly disconcerting amount of schadenfreude. Um, So Colborn, I'm sure you either read the article or saw the article, but I'm curious, what's your perspective on this? I didn't read the article, but to Rolling Stone, I say, you know, is not your print media opinion equally worthless? But to be fair, they're they're also totally right because 95% of NFTs are just inherently garbage, right? If you think of the insane number of NFTs that were created, especially created kind of with like malicious... Well, maybe not malicious intent, but certainly with, you know, extractive intent, projects abandoned, um, even like what the Azuki guy jumping from crypto funks to another PFP mm-hmm. to finally the one that worked. There's going to just be a lot of detritus left in the wake. Um, so, you know, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, like numerous detritus, too. I was trying to explain this to somebody yesterday that like at the height of the, you know, PFP minting craze in um, like mid to late 2021, you know, all of those projects are 10,000 piece projects, right? And there were like dozens of them that would seem to come up every day. So if all of these, which were worthless when they began their lifespan up until now where they continue to be worthless, but they continue to occupy a greater and greater percentage of all the NFTs in existence, then it doesn't feel like this, you know, piece which is referencing a study and i'll go find the um the authors of that study uh in just a moment but it doesn't feel like it's providing any new ground it's more just like skewing a certain analysis or uh, i guess skewing the statistics of the nfts which were minted for the purpose of creating this narrative i remember some ridiculous stat that i read that was maybe something around a hundred thousand at the peak a hundred thousand PFPs were being created and released like every day, you know, which is 700,000 a week, which is millions and millions and millions if, if the pace kept up. Obviously, it was it was unsustainable because, again, those like exclusive communities was never the point, right? There's not enough benefits that you could give to everybody in those communities to have any longstanding and ongoing value. Certainly. And I also think it's important that like with any article like this, we actually dig into the language a little bit. So this is a pulling a quote from the article itself and the report that the article kind of builds around in which a lot of this new scholarship or um, I don't know, all this news about the quote unquote recent death of NFTs is uh, a report from Dap Gamble called Dead NFTs, the evolving landscape of the NFT market. And then this is, I think, an important quote. Upon analysis of 73,257 NFT collections, the authors found that 69,795 have a market cap of zero ether. So I look at that and inherently I feel the pull to draw conclusions, but I think the verbiage is really important. A, that we're only talking about Ethereum. B, that we're talking only about collections, which I'm going to assume 
does not take into consideration any kind of crypto art at all. And if it does, it certainly doesn't take into account one of ones or additions. It's going to do like hard collections. So, I mean, even just what you and I were saying before this, like incredible explosion in the sheer amount of PFP projects that there were, if there were 73,000 PFP projects and 69,000 of them were completely worthless, that kind of tracks with what I feel like you and I have been saying on this podcast for quite a while now that most of these things began as you know worthless money grabs. And then even if they were able to snag a community for a moment, their inability to do anything with that community, because they were you know, hamstrung by their own lack of ideas, the technology's lack of flexibility, et cetera, is going to lead them to a 0% valuation. But, you know, I keep seeing these um, responses on Twitter to this article being like, oh, here's my Fidenza, here's my CryptoPunk, here's my <laughs> one of one. so funny. People are so Yeah, be like, oh, and NFTs is... are worthless? Right. Yeah, because obviously you're holding like the 0.1% of NFTs that actually gain significant value. And even then, some of those assets, you know, I find to be rather suspect, although uh, I guess mimetically they've spread so far and wide that they've become the Mona Lisa of this space at this point. Yeah, it's just kind of funny how predictable I feel like we all are at this point that when, you know, any kind of mainstream outlet is going to publish anything that isn't super um, well-researched or super optimistic about NFTs, there's like a coordinated social media response by everybody in our orbit. I mean, it, it, it kind of goes back to, well, it goes back to a question that I wanted to ask you and, and just your feelings and thoughts on it. And, and for me, it's that, you know, I find a large part of the conversation is pretty tired. And I find increasingly, uh, you know, Twitter, X, whatever it is, an insufferable place to be because you really, I don't see so much thought leadership. I see a lot of people like resting in the past and not knowing how to push and move this thing forward. And, you know, maybe my question, do you feel the same? And follow up is where do we begin to go from here? There's so many like difficult fallacies wrapped up at like the core of how crypto art gets its marketing across and get like actually communicates with itself. Like you're not going to find thought leadership on Twitter nor on any social media. And we know that we've known that for ages and we're going to remain, I think, collectively in crypto art and out of crypto art in denial about that until, I don't know, it becomes painfully obvious or the mechanism of communication falters. Like it just this social media and especially one that's so hair trigger and like truncated as Twitter is just not going to be the place for thought leadership, especially because the platform itself doesn't promote and place its highest value in like analysis or in uh, measured thought or even in like innovation. It's um, it rewards repetition. It rewards uh, opinionation. I mean, the, the, none of this is breaking new ground. So Right. You know, so of I, I course think... the algorithm is eating whatever is trending, right? And that forces people to fall back into old tropes and whatever is trending and whatever has been like mentioned in pop before, which is for sure an issue. But you know what's something that just came to me is, you know, there is a <laughs> and I'm kind of just realizing this now, you know, like the museum was interesting to people in the beginning because it was presenting a form of like visual leadership right we were crafting new sorts of visuals with this art this artistry inside of these metaverse spaces and maybe that is kind of what has gotten tired is there's not so much visual leadership um and different like avenues and areas for people to to explore in in that way well, I also think we have less and less, or I guess fewer and fewer people in the center of this, which like whom A, everyone trusts and B, are interested in being a kind of nexus for everyone. Like the museum still occupies an interesting position in that it, it does kind of fill that role uniquely among crypto art. And we've said that for a, a very long time. And it's been apparent for a very long time that people do trust what we do. And we are kind of interested in being at the center of all of this conversation, whether that's ridiculous conversation, we like insert ourselves in this conversation as we're doing today, um, which is maybe a bit easier because we can diffuse that responsibility throughout like those of us within the museum instead of it all just falling on one person. But it's really hard to do that. And especially as more programs and projects kind of shudder, 
their doors and as more individuals are either driven to you know work in the algorithm for the sake of their own self-preservation or they are driven off of you know the communication side of this thing altogether it's going to get more and more difficult for people to find those kind of like trusted voices so I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a communications problem. You just took a deep pregnant breath. So I'm going to let you say what you're going to say. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it actually comes to like another point that, you know, I've been talking with some people about in DMs, um, you know, and everybody is, is keen, you know, to jump quick at a conspiracy theory. But I think we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing a significant breakdown in a lot of the coordinated voices that drove perhaps whatever you want to call it, the second, third wave of, you know, major NFT growth. Right. So yeah. What do you mean by that? Like, like, can you give me a a couple of examples? I don't particularly want to like drop names and point to the people that are very clearly coordinated. Is this just like the, the general like influencer cabal? Basically. Right. Right. You know, there is, um, you know, let's just say it's not a coincidence that kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, first and second wave artists, when like twenty, thirty thousand dollars could move a market, and then maybe it was like two hundred thousand dollars that could really make somebody big. I'm talking about the time when, um, you know, l- like millions of dollars were being spent by particular individuals to prop up and support and move markets for certain artists. Right. And I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of the most successful artists in kind of the first and second wave never made it into what would be like the third wave, their acceptance. And, you know, I think somebody more data inclined can go back and look at those numbers, but the artists feel it. And the artists have been pointing out to me, like, look at the cracks that are beginning to form um, in, you know, this this influencer plus money culture that was moving what was clearly a highly speculative and manipulated market. Sure. Well, it's the mercenary corollary, right? It's like mercenaries are great, but when the money runs out, they no longer fight for you. Um, And they'll move on to the next thing. And I think we're seeing that with like some of the more famous influencers, but you know, and I think that, you know, we give these influencers a bad rap because they're often involved in a lot of these grifts and market manipulation, but they still provided avenues for people to enter into the space and like become, and you know, they would provide sticky properties that would help people kind of get accustomed to what was going on here. And in their absence and in the absence of this, yeah, I guess like vocal, I don't know. It's like the, it's not leadership, but it's appears like leadership. Uh, maybe people are, yeah, a little bit lost. And, um, and when the market's not telling them where to go, it's a lot of, onus on their shoulders to now make these decisions for themselves and if there's one thing i i can say about crypto art it's that a lot of people in it seem to lack confidence in their own convictions whether in their own artistry or in their own you know self-identification as artist collector builder etc yeah i mean i've been i've been working on an art piece from a uh, about one of these famous influencers who every time i see their gm post it has no retweets the exact same number of comments as likes. And I'm like, there is clearly a network of bots like working for these people to push them up and promote their stuff. And that to me, you know, the amount of misinformation, disinformation, the amount of people that sure they got brought in, but they just got extracted from because they did not realize that what they were engaging with was totally and completely fake. And there is really no way to escape that. And if we're going to <laughs> like move forward and excel as a community, for me, it's, it's critically important that the, the way we are communicating, the way we are disseminating information is actually truthful and honest of what the people are promoting and supporting. And I think, sorry, real quick, and I think the whole reason like the GM thing caught on is because it's very, very easy for people to program bots and move the algorithm to respond GM to somebody tweeting GM. Yeah, I mean, it's easy from all sides, right? You can re- teach a bot to recognize GM. You can teach a bot to 
respond to GM. It also, I don't know, it's like these dog whistles. Um, you know, it somehow like is amorphous and changes its meaning, importance, its level of like odiousness. Like I'm pretty tired of the whole GM phenomenon, but it, it kind of appeals individually to everyone. Like I, f- I feel like it was the one thing that for a while, like real um, self-identifying crypto artists would share with, you know, these pump and dumping, pump pumping and dumping scammers was just this interest or at least a uh, a lack of reticence in like engaging with terminology like that. Like even when Wag Me became Venom uh, after what was her face? Randy Zuckerberg put that video out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After, after that, like GM still kind of maintained its, I don't know, cultural relevance, but um, any other thoughts on this topic or should we move yeah, on to the next I mean, part of I that? I mean, I think just like real quick, there's something nice about GM in its universality, except it's not asynchronous, right? So anybody anywhere, despite whatever knowledge of English they may or may not have, can understand that like this is a affirmation of positivity to like be happy. So I, I, I like it in that way, in its universality. It speaks to kind of, the core accessibility of what crypto art can be. Uh, but I think we need to find something else that is equally accessible, but not so Western based in just like, well, it's, it's only morning for whatever, like a third of the world. And in English. And in English. All right, Colborn, hit me with uh, your first current event today. Oh, I mean, we were kind of just going through all of them. Oh, we're just going down the list. I mean, I was kind of just interweaving them. Okay, cool. Then, then let me uh, then let me restart us at, at my second current event. So, um, you spent some sizable time in uh, Korea and Singapore um, towards the beginning and middle of September. Um, I believe uh, Freeze Seoul and Seoul Blockchain Week uh, were happening concurrently, as well as a number of other like NFT. I don't know if you call them festivals, conventions, get-togethers, what have you, assemblies. Um, and I want to know what does Korea represent in NFTs right now? Oh, that's so what an interesting, interesting question. So I would say like being on the ground in Asia is a relatively new experience for me. This was, you know, my second time in Seoul. Uh, the first time was in March. And just to have like the contrast also between Seoul and Singapore was very, very interesting. You know, to be an artist in a country like this seems to really take a lot more stepping out, uh, stepping outside of the culture, stepping outside of the custom and what is normal. So I'm always like, I always wish that I met more people who were artists in these places. And uh, I'll say, you know, in Korea compared to Singapore, uh, you know, there's maybe like 10x the number of artists. And that is, you know, I think Korea being one of the more, uh, you know, Western inclined of those countries and kind of going through for sure a major cultural renaissance. They are so far ahead uh, on their ability around like display and technology and willingness to promote and innovate around the digital. And I think largely because, you know, that is a new exciting market that they feel they can compete and be relevant and involved with. I think, you know, prevailing sentiment among a lot of the, you know, I had experience of a lifetime going to visit uh, the Freeport in Singapore and just beginning to see some of the treasures that are behind closed doors in a place like this. And, and even, yeah, what- for just, uh, just to stop you real quick. So uh, being that I just learned about the term Freeport a couple weeks ago, uh, a Freeport and please correct me if I'm wrong, Colborn is a, like basically like a temperature controlled secure 24 seven secured uh, warehouse of sorts where like arts are, rather artworks and historical relics and all sorts of like valuable objects are kind of stored in like a way station um, either stored there long term or as like the transit point between going from point a to point b am i correct in yeah basically i mean you know it's a it's a tax avoidant mechanism in which these are nation sovereign yeah bases of storage giant 
effectively bunkers for some of the world's most priceless uh, culture, right? So, <laughs> you know, if, and, and frankly, you know, the only person who knows what is inside the Freeport is the owner of the Freeport, right? So it's a bit of a power nexus for them to do deal making. Um, you know, say somebody wants to sell their Picasso that has never been seen or put on the market. Uh, well, then that person will kind of like look to effectuate a private deal. And maybe, you know, they might just like switch a Monet in a Picasso between two people's rooms in this report. No text is ever transacted, you know, and these are kind of just the, the going ons of the ultra wealthy. Um, so, you know, that, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're all over Switzerland in, in Geneva, you know, I think there's, there's one in, in Portugal, they're, they're really kind of all over. I'm curious, right? There was so many of these various events that happened in Korea all at the same time, right? I think all around Seoul and obviously all of them weren't completely blockchain focused, but there still seems to be like, there's an enthusiasm for including this tech and this cultural movement within the fabric of kind of larger cultural celebrations that it feels like in the last two years or so has been lacking here. Um, is, am I, is that a totally, is that a wrong read? Uh, or what? I mean, I think people are just going where the money is and going where the growth is, right? It seems like Asia is, is going to leads whatever next round of development and innovation happens around crypto. Um, mm -hmm. And you I, say that just because of the financial side and how, you know, the regulation in the U S I just think the, the perception I do, I think it's largely regulatory based. I think it's largely the world is looking outward for leadership and kind of realizing they have nowhere to look, but themselves. Um, and I think they exist in a more cohesive society, which allows them to kind of move faster, further. Uh, and, you know, they're more keenly aware of the goings on. You know, I think their politicians are significantly younger than ours. I think, you know, there is um, more of perhaps like an intergenerational conversation, if that makes sense. And I think that is largely a result of things like K-pop and this massive cultural distribution that's happening. You know, all of the American cultural distribution is pretty legacy at this point, whether it is uh, Hollywood or say something like Apple, um, so it's it's kind of already it's it's harder for things to kind of come up, I think, in the American system than it is for something new and innovative to to kind of come up and be accepted. Do you think a, a place like Seoul will continue to just become a more and more, let's say, like relevant nexus for the world, like upon which the world can convene every year to play around with this technology and, you know, envelop themselves in the culture? Um as opposed to like, I don't know, New York, which um, maybe, yes, it's New York, but it might be uh, losing its, at least in the NFT world, because of the greater kind of like movement of the American regulatory system, like losing its steam, losing its appeal to people from all over Europe, Asia, uh, Africa to come in and celebrate blockchain here. Maybe like a new place will be that kind of like beating heart. You know, perhaps perhaps for NFTs, I'm still curious how they will begin to uptake digital art. Right there, you know, I think they did their they did their first NFT Korea in, and it's definitely still NFT. You know, the Crypto Art Soul event they did an incredible job, beautiful venue, production off the charts. Uh, you know, incredible people showed up from, you know, Dada to, uh, you know, MLO did a wonderful talk. So it feels like there is a commitment to this and there are incredibly passionate people working on the ground to make these things happen. Uh, so, 
you know, is, is like the infrastructure, is the quality of event production so much greater than say an interesting, than say like Basel, yes, or NFT NYC, yes, or whatever they did in London, just undoubtedly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but that also comes out of a place of belief and an interest in innovation, whereas it feels like, uh, and you know, I've only been to two of these NFT NYCs, but in the consecutive years, they seemed like there was a huge drop off of just interest in trying new things. Uh, it was a lot of the second year, like resting on its laurels and a lot of, I don't know, again, not doing, you know, fascinating new displays, not doing new um, invitational mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. I have to shout out somebody who was new to me that I got the pleasure of being a moderator for uh, on a panel around curation. And that was Clara Pei, who's the curator for NFT Asia. Um, and when I went to Singapore, it just so happened, wandered into the Arts and Science Museum in the middle of the day, saw that they had an NFT exhibit, was like, okay, like, let's go check this out. And it was one of the most beautiful, well put together, concise, but like incredibly well explained for a layman displays of like art technology and NFTs. You know, you walk in the door, you have Tyler Hobbs QQL on two big projectors and two computers. You can just customize it and generate it on the spot. Um, behind it was uh, the, the proofs, Larva Labs, Protoglyph alongside four autoglyphs printed. Right next to it was two, you know, seats with, um, you know, more uh, 90s analog TVs playing Deaf Beefs. Uh, glitch boxes the audio glitch boxes and you know you kind of wind your way through these four rooms they had sarah mayoyas bitcoin uh they had the jpeg kind of contract social explorer thing which was amazing they had holly herndon and matt dryhurst ai experiments uh i know i'm gonna miss a bunch of people and i should never have started naming Things. They yeah, had, I know that's like they, yeah, they had bots. Yeah, but it was it was exceptional. It was just exceptional. So to see that was it was hands down the most beautiful exhibit I've seen. And then downstairs they had you know room after room full of these Team Lab exhibitions. Uh, and Team Lab is just kind of creating in an interactive way that was on another level. They were designed mostly for children, but I had the best time in the world. Like you know, massive hundred foot LED screens that was in the shape of, you know, an aquarium. And then you could go draw a fish or a jellyfish. Uh, they had some templates for kids and you could scan it and then your fish would be put into that aquarium and it would like swim around or you could do a, they had one that was like a town and you could do a plane. And it was just so, so cool to see. It was packed on like the middle of the day, Tuesday, um, and that's it. Like that is so the future of how people are going to be interacting and engaging with digital art in a museum setting. Well, speaking of uh, a museum setting, I wanted to get to my last current event for this week, which is the uh, MoMA postcard project announcement. And if you didn't hear about that, um, there's not a ton of information going on right now. Um, I don't know. The quote from their website says, this is a shared experience designed to enable community building on a global scale. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, the MoMA postcard project invites you to collaborate with others in the erection of limited edition postcards. Anyways, the actual mechanisms of what that is seem less important than, for me, another continued bit of outreach into the crypto art world by a vaunted cultural institution like MoMA. And more important than that is I think the list of artists that they chose to include in this 15 person pilot program, whatever this is, are outside of the America Eurocentric white male hegemony um, that I think so often when larger cultural institutions or, you know, a Christie's Sotheby's, et cetera, like um, insert themselves into crypto art, they can't resist just falling back into those old tropes. Um, included in this artist list are people like Osanachi from Nigeria, uh, Ixchels, uh, who's Panamanian, uh, Linda Dunya um, from Senegal, uh, friend of the podcast, 
um, Sasha Styles, Grant Yoon, just folks who are not fitting into the classic um, image of the like European slash American like white male artists. I think that's really important, cool. I think it's something that I despair of every time there seems to be an overture by the rest of the world, by some quote unquote important body into crypto art. The fact that they are not trying to look at artists from around the world. And I don't know the fact that we have um, artists from, I don't know, the US, from Europe, from Africa, from South America, and kind of a representation of various like gender identities. Like that seems in and of itself to be a step in the right direction. So I'm curious, like, what is your opinion on this in general? And um, if you have an opinion on this in general, as I mean, again, like, and yeah, who could, who could really be mad at this? This is awesome. This is awesome. You know? And I think MoMA's is doing everything right to continue to lead in this way. Right. They have already kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe sequestered or budgeted, you know, a significant amount of funds to be spent on the acquisition of digital art. Uh, they said they would be hesitant to, uh, what was the word, imprimatur? Basically, they said they know what everybody is looking at them. So, you know, to continue to engage in this way, right, with this list of artists who is in my, you know, it's a lot for sure of creative coders which I think probably follows a bit of the market, but it is some incredible, I, I can't say anything bad about any of these people. This is just like the most wonderful, beautiful list. I'm sure it will continue to grow and expand. Um, and just congratulations to all the artists. Uh, congratulations. I would imagine Madeline had something to do with this uh, being in, involved at MoMA, congratulations to her. Uh, and you know. I think it's just so it's just so refreshing to have any kind of like industry wide celebration of a list of quote unquote top artists that isn't an obvious list of names um, and includes folks who cover not only the full range of like the geographic spectrum but also folks coming in at all moments of the like NFT boom, bust, boom cycle. Um, and I don't know, it feels really encouraging to me that at least in this like one isolated incident or isolated event rather, that it seems like there was real research done, real thought um, being put into the assembling of this talent. And that means at least that this one institution is capable and interested in that research, in that like kind of deep dive into, again, who might matter in a way that isn't totally obvious, who is worth including um, from a list of people that isn't just the, um, you know, Vincent Van Doe, artist of the millennium, like, sure. you know, stable of stars. Um, totally. And I just, I just find that really encouraging personally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I am going to be the one that always gets excited about what comes next. So after, generative art i'm really really excited about what comes next um and i think we can see some clues here grant yoon osanachi sasha with her poetry i think for the most part the rest are creative coders sarah uh friends uh i think is is but for the most part these are these are creative coders obviously operator with more performance art straddles a lot of this so it's cool, but I, but I want to know, I want to begin to explore what is the visual aesthetics that basically MoMA speaks to as as contemporary. Yeah, yeah, because because it's very it's it's obviously very easy to given all of the hype and the attention around generative arts to go that way. Uh, I think given you know the success of. Um, you know, the uh, exhibition by Rafik Anadol, they wanted to continue to lead people into this generative. I mean, there's no AI artists here, which is interesting. Um, I think that is going to continue to. Well, Linda uh, Dunya does work with AI quite a bit. That's true. That is true. Now, whether the works, whether the works will involve AI themselves is, um, I guess remains to be seen or at least remains to be seen to me. Um, 
But I mean, but then there's a larger conversation of like how much generative iteration is AI and how little, like what is that point at which a generative output becomes AI or, you know, at which point, um, you know, a data set for a generative creation is vast enough or uh, the outputs are varied enough that it can be considered AI. Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but I, I know that other people have raised that quandary to me. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I think this kind of is a segue into to my next question is, and everybody talks about it. I mean, do you think like AI art will ever get a the, a, the place that it deserves? Do we think that these exploration, because I've been in the zero one feed, there's a lot of AI art being shared there. You know, presumably the barrier to entry is significantly lower you know, I am generating every day here locally on my computer. I'm generating right now. I'm gener- I'm generally generating AI art 100% of the time that I am on my computer. And by and large, the outputs are fascinating, you know, and I'm creating. And, and that for me ultimately is a bit worrisome, troublesome, you know, when the interfaces are more accessible, does 95% of this just devolve into the creation of computers? And what does it really mean to uh, be a visual artist in the year 2030 when we are looking at a world that could potentially be like 95% deep fakes well so i I wrote a piece uh i think last year uh about it was like my first kind of exploration of the metaverse and part of that piece required me to talk about just digital art in general and as true as it was then it's true now i'm like literally looking at the screen if you type is digital art into google uh the first search responses is digital art real art right and digital art began in earnest in like the late 60s, early 70s. So, you know, we're, what is it now, 50 years thereafter. And I would say that most people are still kind of on the fence, especially most lay people are reticent to look at computer art and say, this is, I equate this with, in my head, what is like capital A real art, you know, the you know, Renaissance masters, the impressionists, the painters, sculptors, etc. So your first question, right? Like, will... AI art ever get the place it deserves? Like maybe, but not for a really, really long time. I don't think um, we're slow on the uptake uh, as a society to like accept new things into the canon, um, especially when the cries of like this is an art anyone can do this get harder and harder to push back against with each new art movement. It started with photography, then conceptual and like abstract art and then digital art. And now here we are with AI art where literally you don't even need any artistic skill. You just need an idea um, and the right URL and you can create some kind of an artwork. Like, is it going to go away? No, I think it's going to be a frequent, but perhaps unvaunted piece of our lives if that makes sense like it will be everywhere but we won't really care too much about it because i don't know i think aesthetics are going to be so rote and tired after a while that there's only going to be a handful of people who are going to be able to create outside of the boundaries of what are by that point oversaturated aesthetics um the deep fake thing concerns me very much, but I think we're just going to get to a point where nobody believes anything they're seeing on a screen anymore is legitimate. Right. Um, yeah, I just think that there is a world in which AI generations, whether that's voices, faces, messages, etc., are so proliferated throughout the internet and so unstoppable by any of the forces we have at our disposal that we just either have a choice to completely turn off from internet usage altogether in the way that we currently you know engage with it or i don't know i mean i am reminded back to like 2016 2017 2018 when like the fake news conversation was really kind of bubbling into the mainstream consciousness for the first time at least in the u.s um this inability for people to demonstrate um like a real high level of like internet media literacy 
And it seems like that conversation has kind of just quieted down. And I'm not sure if that's because we've just accepted this as a part of our lives or if because awareness has made people better at navigating like the media literacy ecosystem. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the thing about AI that I think is the tell is the um, speed of its development and the speed of its development into the cultural consciousness. Um, you know, it's going to get a lot better. It'll take us decades before, just like with social media, before we're like adept at navigating it as a society. But if we thought the development of social media into our lives was quick, maybe kind of in the background now because we're not visiting chat GPT as much, but I keep seeing AI integration with all of these various tools and soon it will just be a part of every backend technology we have. And when that bleeds out into the front end and soon it's unavoidable because these things happened you know, we can become aware of them. It's sexy. It stops being sexy. And then it slowly, slowly builds and builds and builds. Then all at once it's here. I think a lot of people will just turn off from these things that they can't control and can't understand and which you can get away from if, I don't know, you give up your social media, give up your iPhone, et cetera. Um, what do you think? No, I, I mean, I think that's there. I think it's, uh, it is an existential question. What if there is no ability to trust anything that's read? I think you know, I think I spend, you know, the, the internet used to be something to explore. I think I spend my time on fewer and fewer sites that I know perhaps that are trusted, but in the same way that I don't watch news, I'm not really going to whatever it might be like CNN or I don't, I don't even know what the websites are. Uh, I have, I really have no idea, Yeah, but I don't, you know, I don't like seek out, information like that on on the internet right i'm mostly doing just a couple things i have you know my emails um and you know i have one site that i go to for music uh and it's pretty contained so i wonder if there are still people that are out like exploring and browsing the the internet or if they just kind of have their habits and ingrained patterns and to what extent ai will begin to move into those places and like could you ever trust a reddit forum board if you are unsure of the authenticity it's almost like also amazon reviews right people are paid to go i still don't i already don't trust them for sure, you know, so it, will there be this increasing like information validity creep? And it's the same experience that we were talking about earlier on X, Twitter, I still, whatever. I won't, I won't use X, I refuse. Okay, cool, let's Twitter use Twitter. Um, you know, is the information you're getting there, it, it's, to me, it feels less and less real, right? There was a point where it was real around crypto art and NFTs. Now it is completely fake and manipulated and, and driven, I think, by people with a very keen interest in moving and manipulating markets. Years, years ago, it was, uh, I think, the 2020 election, or maybe it was the 2016. Anyways, I, uh, I became really, really kind of fanatical about the U.S. presidential candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist. And... I was getting all this stuff on Twitter, uh, you know, all the reasons why his policies were great and why his ideas were great and his record was great. And I was like talking to people. I would, I would go in conversation and like defend and fight for this guy. And I had this moment one day where I, I like stopped. I had a moment of meta analysis and I said, like, Max, you have always hated this cult of personality around individuals. You hate politicians uniformly. You hate political candidates because you know, they're all full of shit. What is the difference with this one person? Like what's more likely here that this person broke the mold or that there is something here that is influencing you. And of course I realized that my Twitter feed was filled with all of these individuals and their ideas. And I was just being influenced on all sides slowly, but surely by this wave of political commentators and news outlets that I was following with their skews and their um, impassioned statistics. And it, and I, I remember I scrubbed my Twitter of everything but sports news and which at that time was uh i mean i didn't have crypto art it was just sports news and like entertainment news and i felt myself becoming less and less obsessed with this political candidate over time so i think that i am not alone in 
once you realize the kind of deleterious effects that a lot of the social media has, people kind of turn away from it. It's why Instagram's dying. Um, it's why kids don't use Instagram as much anymore. They're using TikTok because at least that's like fun and funny when it makes them feel terrible about themselves. Uh, whereas Instagram just bypasses the fun to just like people are capable of en masse making decisions to avoid the things that make them feel terrible, or which impact their lives in negative ways. And so I just like, I wonder if, an even more, um, I don't know, grungy, difficult to parse through, you know, scammy online ecosystem right. is going to just push people away entirely um, to whatever other thing is going to come up to capture that market. Well, I'm going to say just in my experiences, you know, with Zero One lately is people enjoy the bugs, right? They enjoy like working through the thing because it feels more real to them. And I think we're moving to, you know, increasingly to this idea of some sort of computer singularity in which everything is like perfect, rounded and smooth. And there will be hopefully a larger rejection of that consolidation of like, call it the Apple aesthetic or whatever pack was trying to do this like hyper, hyper minimalist uh, into like a return to the the clunky 90s dispersed neon see-through. Well, it's like what you make with all of your zero one artwork, right? It's like moving GIFs, all sorts of different uh, animation styles and like levels of resolution. And just like this, it's collage more than it's... Um... It is totally collage. And I... I yeah, what's, I, everything now is like a... Uh, what's the word? Um, what's the, the clear French soup? Consomme. Consomme, sure. Yeah, okay, we'll edit that out. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the early internet was collage, and now the internet is consomme. It's, that's, uh, it's a really good metaphor. Thanks. I'll make that the title of the podcast, too. Mm -hmm. Current events with Max and Colborne, number one, collage <laughs> or consomme. Well, that's good. And I think, I think we'll move back to that. And I think that's part of the, the whole AI discussion as well. But I think that what we like to do is pretend that the internet's been around forever and it really hasn't. We really don't know how it ebbs and flows because we really haven't seen it ebb. We've only seen it flow. And I wonder if, like I, I in a lot of ways, hope you're right and, and kind of could see a world in which we ebb back to early internet because we're reacting to what is happening lately. And just like where, you know, political systems tend to repeat themselves in predictable patterns over time um, with populations I wonder if we'll end up with, you know, 80 years from now, looking back on these 20 year, 30 year eras of the internet and saying, oh yeah, there's a, a peak and a valley and a peak and a valley and they're predictable. And when they happen, they're predictable and what they look like. But you know, I miss stumble upon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like stumble upon too. And all to say, I think we just got to, we got to break it all web three, web two, we got to break everything to rebuild it. Um, to rebuild web four. To rebuild web four. And, you know, I think, People are out there doing the work. How we get people to transition over to these systems is always going to be difficult. But it is a it is a tremendous period of digital transformation. And that is clear. It's needed in America. It is a priority in Asia. And all of these travels and all of these explorations and all of the people that I meet, people are looking for something new. They're looking for something exciting. Uh, they're not finding it in the real world. They continue to look into their phone screens or on their computers uh, for these new types ex of experiences, this, this magic. And that to me is, you know, is still incredibly exciting. That's a lovely thought. One we should end on, I think. Um, how do you feel about the first episode of uh, Current Events with Max and Colborne? Colborne? I actually, I really enjoyed it. I think we got into it. I always enjoy our conversations. I really do. Yeah, likewise. I like this kind of more bite-sizey kind form. of uh, thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like jazz. Well, yeah, we needed like 35 episodes of the actual podcast so we can get in a rhythm, and now here we are. We're yeah. like playing off each other. <laughs> I'm curious if you have uh, thoughts on fantasy football. Um, yeah, I better fucking win this week or I'm going <laughs> to lose my fucking shit. I know, um, it's like that already. Oh, yeah. for Yeah, it's, it's wild. I mean, during the basketball season, my um, – mood is dictated entirely by whether the Celtics won the night before and during football season, my mood like for the week is dictated by how my fantasy football team does. And it is, it is 
has been written about many times, but it is no less true that the amount of my own per like belief in myself, my own self-worth that I derive from the performance of a random <laughs> assortment of football players playing in random conditions yes. um, throughout a week. It's yeah. Um, what about you, man? I, we're in a league together, aren't we? Oh yeah, we are in that league together. Well, I'm one and one. I'm hanging out in fifth place there. Ooh, I'm hanging out in fourth place. Are you? Such, bro. That was I, an I, excellent I, team. Wow. By you know, you know what the oh wait, points forced. Yeah, by point, point one four. Point one four. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bro. Cool. I guess that's what happens when you draft a fantasy football team next to each other after being awake for like twenty three straight hours. Right. You've already you made seven teams moves. Of similar quality. Oh. Yeah, that yeah, this is what I do. <laughs> Don't overthink it. <laughs> oh, it's it, it's it's bad. Yeah. I uh I care about this too much. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, well it looks like you kinda have a gimme this week. You got a fucking you got player. a guy who has this projected to score seventy two points and you are projected to score yeah, hundred and twelve. Yeah. That seems like you the... know I'm gonna lose though. <laughs> you always lose those. <laughs> All right, um, let's uh let's get out of here before yeah, we continue yeah, to talk fantasy course. football. No, you can just I delete keep going. It. Yeah, I know it's funny. All right, folks, this has been current events with Max and Colborn, first of many pods in this uh, I don't know this little this little niche. Uh, we'll be back each and every week we possibly can uh, with a new podcast talking about current events. We will be back uh, this Tuesday at five p.m. Um, for our Mocha Live on Twitter and YouTube. Uh, and that podcast will go up Thursday or Friday. Uh, please subscribe to our Substack to stay up to date on everything we're doing. That is museumofcrypto.substack.com. Please visit app.museumofcryptoart.com if you want to look into all of our tools and cool curatorial workings and releases and things and like that. Uh, Colborn, I miss anything? Any last words to the people before you leave? No. Go watch football peace, for 12 peace, hours? Peace and love. Peace and love, people. This has been Current Events with Max Colborn, and we'll see you real soon. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. Big thanks, as always, to my co-host, Colborn Bell, and thanks to Eugenio Manini for the intro and outro music.